as part of the culture here within our program. We want guys to be lifelong learners. We want guys to be receptive to change. We want guys to be willing to get outside of their comfort zone because that's where growth happens. That was Duke coach Chris Pollard. He's next on the Base Path Podcast. Welcome to the Base Path Podcast with your hosts, Dan Guttenplan and Matt Feld. We're just finishing up our winter edition of New England Baseball Journal, which will have a college baseball preview theme. Today's guest fits that theme as the coach of an ACC school that has been somewhat of a destination for New England baseball prospects who want to take their talents to warmer weather down south. Duke coach Chris Pollard has led the program to unprecedented success in his 10-plus years at the school. Duke has advanced to two Super Regionals and claimed the first ACC tournament championship in program history under Pollard. Coach, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, as I mentioned, you guys are, there's a good New England flavor on the team. I was looking at the roster yesterday. You have, I want to say, six or seven guys down there. What is your philosophy about recruiting in New England, and why are you looking up here for so many players? Sure. No, it, well, it, it, first and foremost, New England players fit the demographic of our university, and there, there are a lot of great students in New England. And we're, we're not only looking for guys that can help us get to Omaha, we're looking for guys that are a great academic fit for this university. Being a private school, uh, there, there, there is a cost factor involved. And, and, and sometimes being in an area of the country where there aren't a lot of other private schools, there can be a little bit of sticker shock involved with that, but not, not amongst the, the, the Northeastern family, because there's a lot of private schools in New England. And, and, and so that cost is more typical to, to what they're looking for and, and, and what they're accustomed to. And then the, the, the main reason is because there's great baseball in New England. And, and it doesn't make sense for us to go up and, and recruit that part of the country unless there are guys that can help us get to Omaha and help us keep winning ACC championships. And we've been able to find a really good niche of a guy that's looking for a place like Duke, of a guy that's, you know, the type of student that fits in well and thrives at a place like Duke and, and also a guy that can help us keep moving the needle for this program. Coach, just speak to the sort of trajectory that you've had over the years. You started at Pfeiffer where you turned the program around and set the program record for wins before also ultimately going to Appalachian State before ending up where you are now. What do you remember for your days or from your first days as a head coach? And what are some ways you feel like maybe you've changed as a head coach since then? Yeah, it's a great question. First and foremost, everywhere I've been, whether it was at Pfeiffer or Appalachian State or now at Duke, I've always looked at it like I'm going to coach and 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 prepare as if this is going to be the job I have for the next 20 years. This is going to be the place that I retire and had that same approach at Pfeiffer and, and Appalachian and certainly do now at Duke. I've changed a lot as a person over that 23 years. Mellowed out a lot when I first got into coaching. I was twenty four twenty four year old head coach, and I really wasn't that far removed from my playing days. And I was a guy that played the game with a lot of intensity and a lot of passion, and 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 tried to coach just like I played when I first got into it. And I've said a lot that uh, if if cell phones were around and and cell phone video cameras were around back then, I probably wouldn't have lasted as long as I have. I, I think the biggest change. Uh, over the years is I, I've learned to to be a more poised, more composed 
person. And I, I really take value in trying to be the same guy every day, bring a, a consistent approach to the ballpark. And I really challenge our players to do the same thing. You had a ton of success. Well, I guess everywhere you've gone, you've had a ton of success. We don't have a lot of AC schools up here. Obviously, it's just BC. And it looks, for me, it looks like such a challenge to compete in the ACC when you're going against these top 25 programs you're recruiting against the same guys SEC schools are going after. BC obviously upgraded their facilities, which is going to be a big help for them. But it's you can see what a challenge it is. When you came from Appalach Appalachian State and went to Duke, how much different did the recruiting process come for you? And was it exciting that all of a sudden you're in on these players that are the top recruits in the country? Well, that's I, I, I think you've, you've hit on a couple of really important things. Number one, the, the challenge in the ACC is you can be good and still not win, right? I mean, right. you can you you can have a deep, talented roster and even play well and still not not win the game because you're you're, you're constantly playing against premium talent throughout our league. When I was at Appalachian, it was much more of a regional university, and we really recruited the footprint of North Carolina because that's where most of the students at Appalachian came from 84% of the university were, were North Carolinians. And so we, we really tried to target the state. We went outside the state for a junior college player or two, but, but not very often. And then get to Duke and, and really don't have any experience recruiting on a national level and had to quickly figure out how to, how to recruit nationally. And, and, and so much of, of being able to recruit nationally is, is contacts and being able to have those contacts in the right parts of the country. But the value that we've always had here at Duke is in, in the 11 years I've been here, I, I've never picked up the phone and spoken with a player or a coach or a parent who wasn't familiar with Duke. My, my previous two stops, we could call a kid from another part of the country and they might never have heard of Pfeiffer and they might never have heard of Appalachian State. And so you're starting with sort of zero familiarity. It's, it's next to impossible to be on the phone with a recruit or a, a coach or a parent and there not be immediate recognizability of the brand power of Duke and of the strength of the academic institution. And that's a real plus for us in recruiting. Mm -hmm. Coach, one thing I find interesting about your coaching career is everywhere you've been, you've pretty much had to help turn around the program. Your first year at Pfeiffer, you won 20 games. And the last year, you won 41. Same thing at Appalachian. Your first year, you scored, yeah, you, got, you guys won, excuse me, 10 games. Then by the time that in your final season, you won 41 games. And then at Duke, within seven years, you guys had won 45 games. How did you kind of handle going from one job to another where you knew maybe in your first or second year at your new spot, you had just come off being so successful at your last coaching job, how do you handle kind of the, you know, the mental and emotional toll that might take on you when maybe you're not having the success when you first get to a new spot that you had been used to? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So each time that I left for a new opportunity, so when I left Pfeiffer to go to Appalachian State, when I left Appalachian State to come to Duke, really sort of in my mind thought that I had figured it out. I had it all figured out. I showed up at Appalachian State coming off of a 41-win season at Pfeiffer where we advanced to the Division II NCAA tournament and, 
And and I showed up thinking I had all the answers. And and then in 2012, here in Durham, showed up coming off of a 41 win season in a Southern Conference championship, and and, and advancing to the championship game of the Charlottesville Regional in the in the 2012 NCAA tournament. And again, kind of thought that I had the 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 magic formula. And what I would say is that by the end of that first year. So by the end of that first year at Appalachian State in 2005, by the end of that first year here at Duke in 2013, I was very humbled and realized that if I didn't make some changes, that it was not going to work. So really, in both occasions, had had to adapt, had to adapt my coaching style and philosophy, had to had to be willing to grow and learn and change. And, and I think... Since that point, being here at Duke, have really tried to maintain a growth mindset and have tried to instill the the concept of a growth mindset as part of the culture here within our program. We we want guys to be lifelong learners. We want guys to be receptive to change. We want guys to be willing to get outside of their comfort zone because that's where growth happens. And both of those experiences of my first year at Appalachian, my first year here at Duke, humbled me to realize that, man, I, I've got a lot of growing and, and learning I still need to do. I always think of recruiting coordinator as such an important position on any staff. It's, it's probably got to be the guy you have the most trust in because he's got to kind of fulfill your vision for what you're looking for for your program, some of the attributes that you just talked about. You changed, well, Ty Blankmeyer is your recruiting coordinator now. He's actually been on the podcast when he was scouting up in the in the Northeast. Have you noticed anything different about the type of player he's looking for or his recruiting philosophy? Well, I've been blessed because I worked for 16 years with one of the very best in the country, Josh Jordan. He was our recruiting coordinator at Appalachian. He came over with me from Appalachian to Duke and, and did a tremendous job and his fingerprints are all over the success of this program. He 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 has deserves tremendous credit for the 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 line of great players that we've had come through here over the last several years. Obviously, Josh left this summer to take the same position at Louisiana State University. He's doing a great job at LSU. One of the things that was important for me in replacing Josh was that I wanted someone with similar energy. You were never going to outwork Josh Jordan, and I wanted somebody with that same kind of tireless energy, that spirit about them. And certainly Ty Blackmire embodies that. There's Those two are, are very similar in that regard. They're, they're hard workers. We, we call it being a grinder. They're grinders. But uh, another factor in hiring Ty was his foothold in, in the Northeast, he, he, the fact that he had recruited the area, he had grown up in the Mid-Atlantic, he had played in New York City, and now had been a, a, a recruiter, albeit at the Major League Baseball level, as a scout in, in New England, we felt like was going to really position us well because he had some built-in relationships in that part of the country that was such an important part of our recruiting model and arguably the the most important area of our recruiting model. Hmm. Coach, the 
I guess forever, but but certainly more so recently. Two-way players are not exactly overly existent at the collegiate level, let alone the professional level. But you guys have one in, in Jonathan Santucci, who played both ways for you last year. And I'm sure you've got similar expectations this time around. What helps you determine whether a player can perform both ways at the collegiate level when you're recruiting them throughout their high school journey? Uh, and just in general, what makes Jonathan the candidates to do and, and, and help your team on both sides of the ball, Duke? Sure. So I, I do believe in the two-way player, both at the collegiate level, but also now you're seeing the two-way player start to have a more expanded role in professional baseball. And I think you'll see more coming down the line. I think what Otani has done as will open the door for more players to have the chance to be two-way guys at the next level. I think our sport has has missed an opportunity for a lot of years in, in, in taking advantage of the two-way player. It's always been a part of our recruiting philosophy. You look at some great players that have come through our program, a guy like Kenny Coplove, who was a shortstop and and pitcher, went on to pitch up to AAA in the Rockies organization. A guy by the name of Jack Lebowski, who was an All-American force on that 2018 team, who was drafted by the Rays and pitched up to AAA with the Rays. Most recently, Matt Mervis, who was a minor league player of the year in the Cubs organization, was a, was a really good two-way player. And you mentioned Jonathan. I think Jonathan physically is the most talented of any of those guys that we've brought in as two-way players. And interestingly enough, when we first recruited John, he came to one of our prospect camps as a 10th grader, and he had just a great weekend swinging the bat. He was playing the outfield and really had a good weekend at the plate. And that's where our initial recruitment started. We saw him that summer, so that summer between his sophomore and junior year, and, and the arm talent on the mound was really special. And so we realized, wow, this guy is a true two-way guy. But because of COVID, we really hadn't pitched a whole lot in his junior and senior year Phillips Academy Andover. And so he had mostly swung the bat and, and had pitched sort of a limited role. But then, of course, last year played a bigger role for us on the mound than he did at the plate. He, you ask what he does well, he's tr tremendous physical skills. He has unbelievable natural arm strength, and it's a very athletic arm action. He's, he's able to be in the zone easily. He's able to stay in the zone very easily because it is such an athletic, repeatable arm action. He's got speed. So from a, from a defensive standpoint, he can really go get it in the outfield, and the arm plays really well to the outfield. But at the plate, he has tremendous bat speed and raw power. And I don't think many people realize just how much raw power Jonathan has. But if you if you put put a blast sensor on his on the knob of his bat and you evaluate his bat speed, it's amongst some of the highest in college baseball. And 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 certainly at times it can translate into real power. The key for him is now can he make that jump from that power and that bat speed showing up in batting practice to it showing up against live pitching, really good live pitching in the ACC. And that's something he's continuing to work at. But he's very passionate about being a two-way guy. And, and I think he's going to have the opportunity to continue to, to do both for a long time moving forward. I think the challenge for us right now in this year is 
how do you take a guy that's your most talented guy on the mound, you know, who most people would tell you if he's your most talented guy, he should be pitching on Friday nights, right? He should be taking the ball in the first game of your weekend series. If he goes out and he does that on a Friday night, how do you turn around and get him in the lineup later that weekend or, or midweek without doing something that might compromise his arm health? And so that's, that's going to be a challenge for us, and that's something that we're still working through and sorting through as a coaching staff. Yeah, UConn had a similar situation last year. I don't know if you were yeah. – Yeah, with Reggie Crawford, he was the same deal. Like their best pitcher – they wanted him to pitch Fridays. He ended up getting hurt. I don't know if I don't know if it had anything to do with the way they used him, but it was or just a freak thing. But yeah, that's a it's an exciting problem to have to try to figure out that. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and baseballjournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal the magazine delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division 1, 2, and 3 colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. I wanted to ask about the NCAA NCAA transfer portal um, because it seems like with an academic institution like Duke, it's probably not as prevalent. Like up here, the Ivy Leagues don't bother with the transfer portal a lot of the stronger academic schools don't do it as much what is how are you using the transfer portal and how do you think that'll play out over the next few years it seems like they're trying to kind of pull back on the transfers yeah so for us we have primarily focused on graduate transfers out of the portal that they, they fit our model the best it's it's very difficult to get into duke from an admission standpoint, as an undergraduate student, Duke doesn't take many transfers just as a general rule as undergrads. Because it is such a rigorous academic institution, oftentimes, you know, what you're able to transfer into Duke, you lose maybe some credits. Not always, but for that reason, our niche has been more to focus on grad transfers. And Guys that still have a, a remaining year of eligibility have already gotten their undergrad degree and now have a year left to play and pursue a master's degree. And those guys have been a really good fit for our program. You go back to 2014, Ryan Dietrich transferred in from Penn. He was an all ACC guy. 2016, Brian McAfee helped us get to an NCAA tournament. He transferred in from Cornell, wound up being drafted by the Rays. A couple of years later, Ethan DeCaster, who transferred in from Creighton as a grad transfer, was a big part of that 2018 Super Regional team. And, and the list goes on. I mean, Ben Gross in 2019 was a guy from Princeton, wound up being a Friday night starter by the end of the year because of some injuries and was a 10th rounder out of here. Peter Matt in 2021 had a huge year force in the outfield, wound up being drafted in the 10th round by the Cubs. So we've had a very strong track record. And 
one of the advantages that we have is we can we can bring a, a grad transfer in on a visit and show him that track record of success. We can say, look, here, here are the guys that have been able to do this really successfully in our program. And oh, by the way, every single one of these guys has left with a master's degree from Duke. Most of them from the Fuqua School of Business, which is one of the 10 best schools of business in the country. So it's been a win-win for those guys and certainly has helped our program as well. Coach, how do you help guys skate throughout the spring when they hear the MLB draft noise and they start getting concerned? Maybe they see a, a Baseball America preseason ranking in January or December, and then all the noise talks about how their performance throughout the spring is impacting their draft stock. What's your advice to, to players that are going through that, and how do you help them navigate it? Yeah, no, I, I've changed my approach. I think I did a really lousy approach early in my career. I, I would. I would encourage guys to ignore it. I would say, look, hey, I'm not going to pay attention to that. I don't want you to pay attention to it either. And that's just not realistic, right? I mean, I, we, you say that, that sounds good, but that's not reality. And so now I, I, I want guys to be comfortable to open up about what they're feeling. And we, we talk a lot in our program about vulnerability-based trust. You can ask any one of our players. That's that's a theme for us, meaning we're, we're going to be real with each other. And so if this is something that's bothering you, if it's wearing on your mind, then let's talk about it. Let's get it out there in the open. Let's not try to hide that and pretend like it doesn't exist. Let's talk about it and see what you're feeling and and, and be real with it and figure out a way that we can we can manage it. It's not going away. You know, that, that feeling is not going away. Those conversations aren't going away. Those tweets aren't going away. So let's come up with a strategy on, on, on how, to, how to manage it. And, and that becomes a big part of our culture. So I've, I've changed from really trying to pretend like it's not there. And that's, the, that's, that's a little bit putting your head in the sand to being more, let's, let's address this head on and let's talk about it. Let's be open about it. I think that's a smart pivot because it's harder to just bury your head in the sand now when you're seeing everything on social media, you know, this, exactly. Yeah. speaking of social media, I saw a coach tweet something out the other day that a, a, a recruit, his parents reached out on his behalf to initiate the communication with the recruiter, or the college coach. And the coach said, I crossed that kid off my list. I don't want his parents reaching out, which seemed kind of harsh because you don't want to blame kids for their parents. I understand you want kids who are independent and who can kind of take charge for themselves. What, what is the best way? How would you recommend that communication kicks off? Great question. Super important. We address this head on in our prospect camps. We, 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 we literally have a segment in our prospect camps where we deal with this directly. And, and to your point, as a young coach, if I were to get an email from a parent, I would engage with that parent and create the recruiting process through that parent. As time shifted, I would engage that parent only as, as much to say, thanks for your note. I look forward to hearing from your son, <laughs> encourage him to contact us directly. So now I would tend to agree with that coach who tweeted it. I didn't see the tweet, but I understand his sentiment. If I hear from a parent, 
I assume one of two things is in play. Number one, this is a helicopter parent that probably tries to do too much for their child, and therefore their child doesn't have a good sense of independence and self-drive. Mm-hmm. Or number two, or maybe a combination of the two, but number two, it's just not as important to the kid as it is to mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And in either one of those cases, it's probably not going to work. And so I think it's really important, and we tell kids this directly in our prospect camps, you need to reach out directly to the coach yourself. It's really important. This is an area of your life where you should be comfortable to self-promote. And the hard part here, you guys, is recruits, high school-age kids, they think email is something that their grandparents did. It feels very antiquated to them. They're, they Snapchat and they TikTok and, 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 and they, they use social media as, as their means of mass communication. But the reality is there's still not a, a good substitute for just typing a two-paragraph email to a coach and introducing yourself and including in there the pertinent information of here's my high school coach's contact info. Here's my travel coach's info. Here's my transcript so you can see what type of student I am. Here's some camps or showcases I've been to if you want to learn a little bit more about my skill set. Boom, hit send. And then a lot of times it is a generic response, but at least it, it's an opportunity to open up the line of communication. Kids should always go in and fill out, a, a, if they're interested in a school, they should go in and fill out that program's online questionnaire and get into their database so that they can start to receive regular correspondence from those schools. But yeah, I hate to sound like the, the crusty old guy, but I, I, I tend to agree with that coach. Coach, just your thoughts on your, on your team this year, just your expectations for the group and how you see the league shaking out overall. Yeah, the league's going to be really, really good again. I, I think, I, I personally think Wake Forest has maybe the most talented team top to bottom in all of college baseball. I've seen them ranked in the top five in a couple of polls. In, in my mind, they should have been a consensus top five overall pick. All of your usual suspects that are, that are tough to deal with in the ACC are going to continue to be good. We, 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 had, we played an exhibition with North Carolina this fall. We played an exhibition with NC State this fall. I can tell you firsthand, those are two NCAA tournament teams. UVA is good. Miami's good. Georgia Tech's good. Florida State's good. Louisville's really, really good. Clemson will be better. So you start going down the line, you're like, well, where, where are the wins come from? And, and, and the reality is you better play well. If you, you're going to have to play really good to get wins. Our team, my, you said expectations, I think we'll be better defensively. I think we're more athletic. I think that ultimately by the end of the year, we'll grow a lot offensively. I think we'll have some throwing pains early on the mound, especially because we're going to be really young on the mound. But I think we're really talented in that area. And I think we're deep. So I think my biggest expectation is that this is a team that has a chance to be a lot better in April than it is in February. And if we can, if we can understand that about ourselves and be playing our best baseball late in the year, then we got a chance to play with anybody in the country. I was actually looking at your roster just to find the number of New England guys. It looks like you still have the pretty inflated roster size from 
obviously you got to cycle through all these guys who redshirted during the pandemic. Um, are you comfortable with your roster size where it is, or is it difficult to keep everybody happy when you have that many guys? No, it's not difficult. It's impossible. <laughs> You're not going to keep everybody happy. And that's true even when you have a 35-man roster. <laughs> so this is an area for me where I'm pretty conflicted as a coach. I think if you if, is it easier to keep 35 guys happy, a larger percentage of 35 guys happy? Versus a larger percentage of 40 or 41 guys. We're, we're at 41 right now. A couple of those guys have injuries. Uh, it's a lot easier to keep 35 happy. But the flip side of that is, what's the alternative, you guys? The alternative is there are a lot of guys getting squeezed out of college baseball. There are approximately 3,000 less players that have moved on to professional baseball since the 2020 draft was shortened to five rounds. So you think about the 2025 round draft and the fact that the draft has been 20 rounds the last two years, and you combine that with the fact that 40 teams have been contracted from minor league baseball. We're now down to 120 minor league teams instead of 160 minor league teams. There's just less opportunities to go around in our sport for some really good players. So what are the, what are the options? One option is, you stay with expanded rosters, so you provide more opportunities for those guys. Or the second option is more, more really good players just get squeezed out of an opportunity to keep playing our sport. And so neither option is perfect, but I'll take the option of expanded rosters over the option of guys getting squeezed out of being able to keep, keep playing. That's my thought. Mm -hmm. Coach, I'm just curious, just your overall perspective right now on the state of amateur baseball. You certainly see a lot of it. I know your staff sees a lot of it. Just some things or maybe trends that you, you like or don't like. And what's your overall advice, if you have any, two coaches that are currently working with high school and youth players? Yeah, great question. I think it's really, really important that we continue to keep the high school coach and the high school program involved in the recruiting process. That's my first thought. Second, I do have real concerns that with the proliferation of travel baseball, and there are plenty of really positive things about travel baseball. So this is not a slight against travel baseball, but as the as travel baseball has become more prevalent in the overall model of amateur sports, I worry about what that does to the low-income player. And are, are we squeezing players with less means out of being able to, to play our sport, and are they turning to other sports? Baseball should be a sport for everybody, and, and, and there should be opportunities for everybody to, 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 to keep playing it and compete in it. And, and, and to be really candid with you guys, I worry about minority participation in our sport. I worry about our sport having not, not having enough players of color. And I worry about that at the college level. And I think it has to be a continued point of emphasis in the recruiting models. And it has to be a continued point of emphasis. We, we, need, to, we need to do a better job in our sport of finding opportunities for coaches of color. And we need to do a better opportunity, a better job of finding opportunities for players of color in our sport. So our sport looks like our country. Yeah, that's a good, a good point. Last question for me. The, you mentioned Duke is, is a recognizable school to anyone now, both academically and athletically. 
I think Coach K is probably as have played as big a part in being responsible for that as anybody. And obviously, I was everybody's heard the Coach K stories over the last year, kind of leading into his uh, final season. Do you have a Coach K story that maybe would surprise people, whether it's just a funny story or not like the J.J. Reddick, he pulled me up during the darkest time of my life and got me my job in media, more something that people wouldn't think? Yeah, you know what? I, uh, I have so much respect and appreciation for Coach Krzyzewski. He was always great to me. People ask me, people ask, did, did you know Coach? What was your relationship like? And the best way I know to describe Coach Krzyzewski, after a big win, after a big series, getting on the bus, getting back into the office, and you pull, you, you pull out the phone, and he would always be one of the very first texts I got. Hmm. Never forget, get, getting back on the bus after the ACC championship, after a, a winning a regional, he, he, he followed our program closely. He cared about Duke baseball. He's a baseball fan. I mean, he's a, he truly is a fan of the sport. Grew up in Chicago and, 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 and is just a big fan of the sport on all levels. He was always great to work with and meet with our recruits. So think about what a, what a thrill that is as a, as a recruit or for a family to come in and, and you say, hey, oh, by the way, we're going to stop by Coach Krzyzewski's office. He wants to say hello to you. He was terrific about that. But if you want a funny story, in 2013, I was, I was invited to come over and watch practice. And one thing I can tell you about Coach, he coached his players very hard. He, 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 he was very demanding. He could coach them really hard because he had so much respect from them. But I had the misfortune of coming to a practice right before they played Miami in 2013 and suffered a really bad loss. They had a really bad setback loss on the road. And I had been there at practice the day before they left to make that trip. I'd hung out in the film room. I'd stood beside coach and made notes during the practice. And then they go and get blown out. And I didn't get invited back to practice for like <laughs> four years after that. So I, say, I think everybody felt like it must have been my bad juju on my part that, that I had brought to the practice somehow because I didn't get an invite to come back for a long time after that. Oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> well, Coach, I really appreciate you taking the time. We're excited about the college baseball season, and it's great to be able to connect with you this close to the start of it. So thank you so much. Same here. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much, Coach. Thanks to Duke coach Chris Pollard for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.